Beloved, open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 59 tonight. And this text that we're looking to, at tonight is the second in a triad, right? It's the second in a triad that began in chapter 58. And you remember back in chapter 58, we saw, you know, described for us the vast difference between false and true repentance, right? The, the diametrical difference between, between religious superficiality and, and, and true sincerity, between religious ritual and God-honoring reality. And the difference, when you boil it down, like when you look at it and you say, okay, so what is the ultimate result in the difference between these two? Well, the difference is the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death, right? That's the reality of this text that we looked at. And so the reality is that God regards true repentance, but he has zero time, no regard no concern for religious theater and play acting, right? And so here's what we're going to see tonight. As we work our way through the first eight verses of Isaiah 59, Isaiah is going to address the pervasive sinfulness of the Jewish people. He's going to address the pervasive sinfulness of the Jewish people, this nation that was called by God to worship and to be a witness and which had fallen to pieces as a religious community, okay? And then in verses 9 through the first half of verse 15, we're going to see how Isaiah offers confession before God on behalf of the people, all right? So let's stand together and let's read this text. Um, this is the Word of God, the Word of the living God. And Isaiah says, beginning in verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or is ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness, no one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. Their and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet, are, their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord. 
and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Wow. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord God, for the revelation that you give to us, Father, through your prophets, that, that revelation that climaxes in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the teaching of the apostles. We thank you for your word in every form, the, the poetry and the song and the prophecy and the narrative. We thank you for your word, for, Father, the, for the tough parts too. Because, Lord, we know that hard but divine truth makes for soft hearts in those who receive it. And so, Lord, as we look at this text tonight, I'm praying that you'll give us a heart to receive it. I'm praying, Lord God, that we'll have comprehension and understanding of what it is that Isaiah is teaching to us tonight. What it is that you are teaching us through your Spirit-inspired prophet. And I pray, Lord God, that we would that we would be instructed deep in our souls, that we'd get the weight of these words tonight, that we'd understand how serious they truly are and how they're not just words that are aimed at an ancient people who claimed your name, but Lord God, they are words that everyone who claims the name of Christ, claims the name of our Lord God, Lord, we all need to deal with these words. We all need to deal with this truth. And so I pray that you will help me, Lord, and, and lead me and give me the unction of your Holy Spirit so that I can teach these words accurately and faithfully, so that I can do it, Lord God, as you would have me do it in the, in the, in the, the manner and, and in the tone, Father, that you would have me speak these words. And I pray that by your Spirit you would prepare the hearts of my brothers and sisters here to hear these words and that they would, they would come to them Lord God, as words that, that we need to reckon with and that we would all do so. So please bless this time. Please glorify yourself, Lord, in the teaching and the preaching of your word and show us our desperate need for Jesus. We love you. We give you all glory. We bless you, Lord. We thank you for this time together tonight. May your presence be thick as we study your revelation, the revelation of your word together. I ask it in Christ's blessed and holy name and in his merit. Amen. So the introduction tonight, beloved, is going to be a little bit longer than normal. But it is so for a reason. I want us to understand, I want us to, you know, as we come into this text, how is it that we're to understand it? Like, what's the proper lens through which we view, we should view these words, okay? So let me remind you of something, right? Israel slash Judah, they were, they were a theocracy. That, Israel was a theocracy, right? It was a nation that was ruled by God, okay? God was, was the ruler of the nation, whether the various kings or the people, for that matter, honored him or not, okay? 
they were a religious nation, okay? A nation that belonged to the Lord. And he expressed his rule through his self-revelation through the prophets, through the faithful prophets that spoke on the Lord's behalf. And he also gave, you know, evidence to his rule through the blessing and the judgment that he brought upon the people in accordance with their response to his revelation, okay? And so in a parallel way, the Jewish nation here serves as a picture of the visible church that is ruled by Christ, right? Just as in Israel slash Judah, you had a mixed bag of those who were true Israelites and those who were not, so too in the visible church, there is a mixture of the remnant that truly belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are identified with him, who are identified with him in name only, right? You with me? You with me so far? So the truth is, just as the Lord God ruled Israel, Judah, Jesus Christ rules the visible church through the faithful preaching of his word by faithful preachers of his word, whether the people who call themselves by his name honor him or not, okay? Now, I'm not, having, I'm not gonna talk about false teachers and false prophets and all that stuff. I'm just talking about in the visible church, okay? The visible church is ruled by Christ through the preaching, the faithful preaching of his word by faithful preachers of the word, right? And that's true, that is true, whether the people who call themselves by his name actually honor him or not, okay? So what's in view here, as we're looking at this text, is the calamity that ensues when those who call themselves, who profess to belong to the Lord, instead of following him faithfully, instead pursue self-gratification and sin, and turn their backs on the clear revelation of God for salvation in order to turn to something that is more attractive to their fleshly desires. And that was the very problem of the nation of Israel. I want you to remember this, that from the beginning, the issue with Israel was one that was twofold, okay? It was twofold. One was this, this constant, and it seemed like, inescapable, if you will, sin of idolatry that they brought with them out of Egypt. But then, as a result of that idolatry, the rampant sin that followed, okay? So the sin of Israel didn't just bubble up out of nowhere. The sin of Israel and their rejection and their hardness of heart towards the Lord really was rooted in idolatry. And idolatry for them, listen now, was multi-layered. It went all the way back to the Exodus, right? When Aaron constructed the golden calf at the foot of, of Mount Sinai. Well, you know, when he, I just threw this gold in the fire and out came the calf, right? Right. But you remember the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, here's what they did. They took Yahweh God and they redefined him into an image that was acceptable to them, that was familiar to them, that was something that was, you know, that they could, they could control or tame or influence or manipulate, right? With me so far? People do that today, don't they? We see that in the visible church all the time. But they didn't stop there. 
The nation of Israel wasn't content with just reimagining God. They claimed then to follow God while they gave themselves openly and profligately to, to other idols, committing spiritual adultery, just like many do in the visible church today, giving some homage to God, but in reality devoting themselves to the idols of our present culture, whatever they may be. And so the result, beloved, of re-imagining God and the spiritual adultery that goes with that, the result is the destruction of the worshiping community. Okay? The result is the destruction of the worshiping community. Here's why I'm saying that. When you, when you redefine God and you devote yourself to idols, whatever form they might take, and, and here's what people fail to see, right? When you do that, you're no longer worshiping God, but in reality, what are you doing? You are worshiping and you are serving who? Yourself. Yourself. And the problem is that in serving ourselves, Sin grows rampant and it grows unchecked because we serve our sinful desires and our sinful self-centeredness. And as a result, when everybody's looking out for themselves, only the fabric of the worshiping community is ripped to pieces by sinful and selfish inclination, right? Because there's no room for any other gods than ourselves, What I mean by that is this, like, okay, well, if we're all just our own individual gods, here's the thing. You can be a god like me. You can be a god like me, but you cannot be the supreme god because only I can be the supreme god. And it leads to conflict and and, and destruction. And so when your desires and my desires, when they come into conflict, I got to win. But even more to the point, most tragically, In deifying and serving ourselves, we willingly cut ourselves off from the deliverance and the salvation that only God can give. Only God can save us from the consequences of our sin. No other gods will do because all other gods do is multiply our sins. You with me? So what this text is focusing on is the consequence of religious sinners rejecting the revelation of God. What it makes of them how it wrecks any community or society, how it cuts them off from the salvation of God and the blessing of God, and how the only answer is repentance and confession before him. So one other thing I want to say just before we we jump into the text tonight, one more thing that I want to say, you're no doubt going to see parallels with our own nation here. Okay, you're going to see them. As we go through this, it's not hard to draw the lines. But here's what I want to say about that. We're not Israel. We're not a theocracy, okay? We're not the Lord's chosen nation. I'm going to say that again. We are not the Lord's chosen nation. But these words are applicable even to 21st century America that has been blessed by, from its inception, the fervent and the faithful preaching of the gospel. And quite frankly, it's applicable to any nation, all nations that have been blessed in that way. So this is a tough text tonight. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it for you. This one's tough, man. This one is a hard one, right? You know, 
But it sets up for us the beautiful and the gracious intervention of the Lord to rescue his people from the degradation of their sin and the judgment of the reprobate that we see in the rest of this chapter. So I want us to notice how this text begins. It begins with a really straightforward and plain statement of fact about the brokenness of the nation. Right? This is, this is tremendous. Look at it with me. The, the nation of Israel, just look at these first two verses. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The reality was that the nation of Israel slash Judah as a whole, as a whole, I mean there's a remnant there, but as a whole, they were spiritually broken and fragmented. They were wretched and they were corrupted. And why was it that the state of the people was as it was? Well, here's the answer. In essence, Isaiah is saying here, look, let's just cut to the chase. The reason for your wretched condition is not because God doesn't have the power to rescue you. That's not it. And it's not because God is deaf and can't hear your groaning over your condition. He can hear it. It's not because God has failed to keep his promises. That's not it either. The problem is your unrepentant sin. The issue is your iniquity. It's your pattern of stiff-necked rebellion against the words of God. That's the issue here. Don't try to find another scapegoat. Don't try to find another place to put the blame. The problem is with you. It's with you. Sin had separated them from God and from his blessing. And his face was hidden to them, right? Well, you remember, like that, that's catastrophic. Because if you remember the ironic blessing in, in Numbers chapter 6, it reads like this, right? This was the, the blessing that Aaron was to read over the people, right? It says this, that the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, again his face, upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Here's the idea, right? They were taking the name of the Lord and they were not to take it in vain. And if they took the name of the Lord and not in vain... God's face would be upon them to bless them. His countenance would be lifted up, you know, toward them. They would be exceedingly blessed, right? But they had taken the names Lord in vain. It names the Lord's name in vain. The name's Lord in vain, yeah. The Lord's name in vain. They had. And they'd pursued iniquity and sin. And so God wasn't present with them to bless them or to graciously shine his face on them or to turn his countenance to them and give them peace. Rather, his face was turned away in discipline and judgment. It wasn't that God had been unfaithful. It was that they were. It was that they were. And in their unrepentant state, God didn't hear their pleas. In fact, it's even stronger than that. It's even stronger than that. That, that translation's good enough, but it's even stronger than that. The idea is that God would not hear them. Not just that God somehow was unaware of their pleas, it's that he actively refused to hear what they said. That's the idea here. As they cried out about their condition, God willingly refused to hear unless they confessed and repented of their sins. Well, here's the point. Okay, here's the, here's the axiomatic statement. 
There is no fellowship with God as long as we continue to live in unrepentant sin. I'm going to say that again. There is no fellowship with God as long as we continue living in unrepentant sin. God is, it's not that God is powerless or insensitive. It's that God is holy. And he cannot have fellowship with a people who walk in darkness. It is a categorical impossibility. And it's not just an Old Testament axiom. The Apostle John said the exact same thing. In his first epistle, in, in the first chapter, in verses 5 through 10, this is what John said. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. The nation as a whole was walking in darkness. And if they couldn't see it, if they were oblivious to that fact, Isaiah was now going to hold up a mirror in front of their faces to show them, as they, to show them, them who they were in reality. Look at what he says, Isaiah does, starting in verse 3. In essence, he says, you know, why does God refuse to hear? I'll tell you why. First he says, verse 3, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. In other words, when they lifted up their hands in prayer, which was the Jewish posture for praying, they would lift up their hands to the Lord. When they did that, all God saw were hands stained with blood. That's all he saw. He saw hands stained with blood. And the idea is that of murderous intent toward other. This grasping and this clawing for advantage over other people. This, this desire to tear everyone down to get to the top of the heap. That's the idea here. He saw fingers that were trained to do iniquity. Trained to serve the inner corruption and covetousness of their hearts. Their lips were trained to lie to others because their tongues muttered wickedness. And this is particularly strong. Here's what, it, here's what he's saying here. The idea in the Hebrew is that, is that you know, what they do the hands and the, with their hands and their fingers and what they say, it's all predicated on the fact that they lie to themselves. They mutter to themselves. They lie to themselves. They tell themselves falsehoods and lies to prop themselves up in their minds. That they are, you know, all right but the, and that the fault of the condition that they are in is really somebody else's fault, even God's fault. In other words, what they're doing is they're deluding themselves. And they delight to have it that way. They lie to themselves over and over about what's really going on with them. And here's the thing about self-delusion, beloved. There is no delusion quite so strong as self-delusion.
And they were deluding themselves. Isaiah continues in verse 4, No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief. And they give birth to iniquity. Now on the surface, we might look at this, and it sounds like a New York courthouse, right? It sounds like this verse is talking about injustice as it regards the fair and the impartial application of the law. And that is part of it. Isaiah tells him that they were guilty of using the legal process for illegal ends. You know, the very reason that their society was corrupt was because justice had been corrupted, right? They were plagued with empty pleas, that is, arguments and and charges and accusations that amounted to nothingness, absent of any common sense. It's what we call gaslighting today, right? And that was true, but there's more to it than that. The idea behind that phrase, no one enters suit justly, okay? What that's really getting at is that it speaks of of taking a public stand for what is right. In other words, they were as a whole a society that was unwilling to take a moral stand on anything. That sounds exceedingly familiar, doesn't it? They were unwilling to take a moral stand on anything. And they spent, you know, all their time conceiving mischief, and giving birth to iniquity. That is, they spend all their time considering ways to sin against God and then act upon those inclinations and then justify them. That's the idea. Well, you can draw the line, can't you? In the confederacy of parts of the visible church and, and segments of our own society that are lockstep together, you know, efforting to reduce and redefine God's authority over every arena in life in order, to ad, in order to advocate for ungodliness. They wrangle over words. You see it? And then Isaiah employs a metaphor to, to describe them, right? He's the master of this. He says, verses 5 and 6, they hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Isaiah is saying, you know what? The truth is you guys are like serpents, and, and, and you're, like, you're like spiders. You're like snakes and spiders, right? Like, that's, that's not a, a nice metaphor to use, right? It's not like puppies and kitties. We like those. Snakes and spiders. Nobody likes spiders, and the few people that like snakes are kind of weird. If you're in that group, sorry, but it's true. But here's the point. Y'all like vipers, he's saying. Like vipers, they hatched eggs. They, they, they hatched schemes and plans that ultimately destroy the people who believe and consume them, Right? If somebody crushes the egg, that is, exposes it as being dangerous and attempts to kill it, right? They still perish as a result of the bite of the viper. And then like spiders, they, they try to weave webs of deception and false confidence and, and webs that, 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 you know, give off a, a, a sort of, a, you know, produce a certain oh, reputation or whatever that you want to project, But those webs can't cover them in the day of judgment. That's the point. They're fleeting and they're thin and they really don't offer any real covering. 
A sinful society just produces serpent eggs and spider webs. Stuff that kills you and nothing that can save you. Nothing that can clothe you. And it leads to iniquity and violence. In fact, John Oswald says this. He says, So it is with a society that's rooted in iniquity. Instead of promoting life, it destroys life. Instead of offering quiet substance, it touts glittering emptiness. What turns a productive society into a pernicious one, you ask? Any number of things. But above all, devouring self-interest as expressed in the words iniquity and violence. Taken together, they mean that what is right is twisted to be what I want. What is right is twisted to be what I want. And that any means of obtaining what I want, up to and including physical violence, is always justified. What's left for people like that? Well, humanly speaking, Isaiah tells us that verses 7 and 8, their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, when, 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 when you're so blinded to your sin, when you've so hardened your heart to the revelation of God, when you've actually deluded yourself into thinking that you are in fellowship with God when in reality you are serving sin and you have no regard for God, what happens is that people becomes thoroughly perverse. All the restraints get removed. There's a mad rush toward evil, in, toward evil in the attempt to satisfy the flesh and to get there before somebody else does. The actions of such people, they're expressions of a corrupt mind, right? It comes from their thoughts. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, right? Literally, plans and schemes that have been carefully developed until they are sprung. And so we look at that and we have to ask ourselves this, like, how does this get fixed, right? How can this ever be changed? Like, is it just a matter of, you know, the sinful mind, does it just need to, to, to does it just need to be sort of realigned and reeducated and repurposed? Do we, you know, how do we get people out of this? Like, do we just educate them better? Do we just try to help them to think better thoughts and schemes and, and to reason more carefully and try not to be so self-interested and instead try to like follow the example of the servant? We've tried that. We've tried that. It doesn't work. You know why it doesn't work? Because the fallen human mind and mindset needs to be recreated it needs to be renewed. It needs to be transformed. It needs to be regenerated. It needs to be replaced, but you know, with a brand new mind, the mind of Christ by virtue of the servant's sacrifice and redemptive power. That's what has to happen. The fallen human mind just doesn't just need to be reformed. It needs to be regenerated and renewed according to the word of God. You with me? And that's the heart of this. And here's the deal. Here's what he's saying. There's no path to peace apart from the Lord's intervention. That's what he's getting at. When he says here about the Lord, he says, his highways are peace and they're redemption. 
But human highways are destruction and confusion. In his way, there's guidance and there's confidence. But in our ways, there's discord and strife. In the Lord's way is restoration and peace, but in our way is only greater and greater degradation and destruction. Beloved, there is no deliverance except in the Lord. None. You can't cancel sin by sinning more. You don't escape the consequences of sin by scheming, you know, greater plans of iniquity. There's no deliverance except in the Lord. And that's, why the, that's the whole reason why Isaiah holds up the mirror here as he does. He's not being cruel or uncaring, okay? He's not being strident or harsh. In fact, can I tell you what? This is the most loving thing that Isaiah can do for these people. Because somebody needs to see themselves as they really are, you know, without any filter. You know? Nobody posts pictures anymore without the filter. Everybody knows you're doing it. Why do you keep doing it? Just stop. Just show yourself the way that you are because that's how we see you when you see your face to face, right? You've got to see who you really are without any filter applied. Because until you do, you will not sincerely turn to the Lord. You just won't. So here's Isaiah. And following his prophetic diagnosis, he then offers confession on behalf of a sinful people. And these words that we're going to read here, this is what is generally called a communal lament. Okay, It's the kind of prayer when the people of God come together. Okay, The visible people of God. When they come together... And they're led by some spiritual leader in prayer in which a desperate people pray along with him. And they pray, you know, in repentance from a God-stricken heart. In fact, the idea is that it comes from a heart that says, you know what, we have given up, we've given up pretending that, that we're okay. We've given up pretending that things are all right or that we have the resources to deal with our self-inflicted iniquity and trouble. We've come to the end of our self-justification. We've come to the end of, you know, our self-trust. And we know that if deliverance is to come at all, it's got to come from God. And I want you to notice something here that's really important. Two things at the jump before we look at the rest of this section. First thing I want us to take note of is this, is that Isaiah includes himself in this confession. Okay? He's going to use the words we, we, we. Not you, not they, we. And the point here is that he's not just chucking rocks and condemning those sinners over there, right? Rather, whether he's guilty of the specific sins or not that he's outlined, he is surely a participant in the grievous results. And so he prays with them, not about them. See that? Or you'll see that in a second. And the second thing is, the presence of that word, therefore, indicates that what we're getting into is the logical conclusion of everything that Isaiah has just said. In other words, Isaiah is saying, since we, what I have just said is true, therefore here is our situation. And this is how we must respond. Okay? The first thing it begins with is the realization of their separation from God and why it's so. Look at verse 9, starting in verse 9. We'll read 9 and 10. Isaiah confesses, therefore, because of everything that's true about us, therefore justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. 
We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Now those words justice and righteousness have been used with a different nuance, right? Throughout Isaiah. But here, what Isaiah is getting at is this. He's saying that the right state of affairs, this atmosphere of honesty and fairness and uprightness, of faithful dealing with one another, it is utterly absent from their experience. And the reason why is because they have rejected the truth of God. They haven't sought refuge in Him. So they, 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 there is no, no comfort to them, no refuge with his people in the midst of a world that's in rebellion against God, no light in the midst of the darkness because they're just like the worldlings themselves. They're spiritually blind and there's no joy, only gloom and groping in the darkness. And the idea and the way this is written is like, what, what could we have expected? Yeah, of course there's no justice. And of course there's, there's no righteousness. It's far from us. Righteousness is not gonna overtake us and tackle us and just you know spring forth out of nowhere. We fooled ourselves into thinking that we're going to see light or, you know, that, that, that we're going to have brightness. But in reality, all there is is darkness and gloom because that's what we've made for ourselves. That's what he's saying here. That's what's being said here. This confession that, you know, they're just groping around in the darkness. That they have no eyes. Their, their spiritual blindness, their indifference to God has made them as if they have no eyes. Here's the point. The circumstances, the conditions of their lives are not the issue, right? Noonday sun is the same as the twilight. It's their inner state. It's their inner state before the Lord that is like that of a dead man because they become so desensitized to the word of God. Then he goes on to say in verse 11, we all growl like bears. That's not a compliment. I'll tell you why in a second. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. The picture here is of a bear growling in anger and in frustration and in hunger. That's the picture here. And this moaning like doves over their condition, their longing for salvation, for his rescuing, transforming work. They're moaning like doves, but they have zero expectation in themselves that, that it's going to be fulfilled. Isaiah's acknowledging on behalf of the people that if salvation is going to be found, it's got to come from outside of them. And that this groaning is a recognition of their own sin is made clear in verses 12 and 13. Look at it. He says, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Finally, we get to the point, right? where we see a personal ownership of sin against God. Right here. This is it. The recognition that it's their sin that has caused their breach with God and that testifies against them. In fact, it sounds a lot like David in Psalm 51, right? The quintessential psalm on repentance. It sounds a lot like David in Psalm 51 when he, when he says, 
in verses 3 and 4, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your sight. You remember how David tried to cover up his sin? He tried to cover it over. He tried to, you know, he tried to cover it over first with more sin, right? Then he tried to ignore it and pretend it didn't exist until finally God sent the prophet Nathan to come and confess. And, and confront him. And then all of a sudden, his eyes that he had blinded himself were opened by the Lord to see the greatness of his transgression against God. And it brought him to repentance, right? It's the same thing that's going on here in this, in this chapter. Isaiah's held up the mirror of truth. They've seen it. They have seen the reality of their sin and how far they are from God, even though they think that they're still in some kind of loose, you know, loose fellowship with him. And like, the reality is, man, we're wretched. And our sins are ever in front of our faces. And I, and I want you to notice what, what, what he does here. Isaiah lists these transgressions, you know, in specific. He makes an honest assessment of the spiritual declension of Israel and Judah. And it's, and it's broken into sins specifically against God and then against one another. Look at it with me. They'd sinned against God by transgressing against him. And the idea of that word the, the, the idea of that word being open rebellion and defiance. I'll put it like this. Here's a picture for you so that you can see it in a human context. Imagine you've got a child, right, that has gone into the refrigerator and he's gotten a, a glass of milk, right? He's poured himself a glass of milk out of the gallon of milk, but then he just drinks the glass, sticks it on the counter, leaves it there, and leaves the, the, you know, the, the gallon of milk sitting there as well. And the child's standing there, and you say to them directly, put that glass in the dishwasher and put the milk back in the refrigerator right and they look at you and then turn around and ignore you like you never said a word that's the picture of this word transgressing it is to hear from the lord and to ignore and turn around and do the very opposite of what he commands. They denied the Lord. The idea being that they had attempted to, what that means there, this word deny, it means they attempted to deceive him by false devotion and insincere repentance. And they didn't fool him. They had turned their back from following the Lord. That is, they had deliberately rejected the way of God for their own way. And they purposely hindered their own hearts from following him. That's the idea, that they purposely put up roadblocks in their own hearts so that they might not return to him. In fact, it's the picture here of a husband and a wife that are once joined together in the Lord and then are utterly fractured from one another. And the picture is the idea of, of like Israel being the bride to God, to, to God who is the groom, right? And then turning away from him and turning away from the love that keeps company with God and the devotion that gladly receives his leadership. Because in reality, they're driven by selfish and sinful ways. 
And their hardness of heart toward God was evidenced in the way they treated others. They encouraged sinful actions and behaviors among one another. They encouraged revolt against God. Okay, they spoke oppression and revolt. That's a word that means apostasy and defection from him. They encouraged it. Then Isaiah characterized them, characterizes them as conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. And the meaning of that phrase is that they were guilty of falsely convincing one another that they were in right standing with God. They were a mutual lying admiration society. They lied to one another like, okay, we're, we're, we're all right with God despite the fruit of their lives. They deceived others and they were being deceived by others. And so Isaiah closes this communal lament and this confession by saying, in verses 14 through the beginning of verse 15. Justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Here's how bad it is, Isaiah is saying. Here's where we are. There's no justice or righteousness among us, and the reason why is because we don't regard God's truth as being of any worth. It stumbles in the public square. It has no, it has no purchase in anybody's hearts. We lack the truth, not because God hasn't spoken it to us, but because we have refused to hear it. In fact, it has become so bad. It has become so bad that anyone among us who actually faintly hears or regards the Word of God and seeks to depart from evil, not even necessarily to pursue righteousness, but just depart from the evil that we're doing, they become a target of scorn and derision and destruction among us. This is a powerful passage, right? It's a, it's a powerful confession on behalf of religious sinners. In our modern culture, when we hear stuff like this, it sounds almost over the top. Like, man, I mean, this doesn't sound like the confessions we make sometimes, does it? So we look at them and go, like, just kind of over the top maybe a little bit, right? You know why that is? I'm going to tell you why that is. It's because the holiness of God rests so lightly upon us in this present age. That's why. R.C. Sproul said, and I agree with him 100%. He said, The failure of modern evangelicalism is the failure to understand the holiness of God. And I agree. But it's not just the failure of modern evangelicalism, but of religiosity throughout the ages. We don't regard the holiness of God. So we don't see our own sinfulness. And we don't, we don't value as we should many times the Redeemer who has rescued us. Beloved, hear me when I say this. God doesn't fellowship with the ungodly no matter if we claim His name or not. He doesn't. You can have the name of being alive and be dead. 
And there are many churches that do. That have the name of being alive and they're dead. Jesus said so. There are many professing Christians that have the name of being alive, but in reality, they're dead. And the fruit of their lives proves it. God is holy. His commands are holy and good. And obedience to his word Beginning with obedience to the gospel command to repent and believe in Christ alone. And then to obey his commandments and so demonstrate that we love him. And to live in conformity to his word so that we live a life that is pleasing in his sight. To be holy as he is holy like he commands us is not a small and peripheral thing. It is the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. Are you with me? And so to reject his truth and to walk in deliberate sin and iniquity and to claim to have fellowship with him while we walk, while someone walks in darkness is not only foolhardy and destructive to the human soul, it is the worst kind of self-delusion and it ends up in damnation. So here's the thrust of this. Israel and Judah were in a very dangerous place. And they needed to be scrupulously honest about themselves before the Lord. They needed to come to real repentance before God. Beloved, so do we. And we need to do it all the time. We need to be continually attacking our sin with the gift of repentance. And not just the big ticket things, like what we think is like a big sin that we really need to repent of. Man, you need to chase down the little foxes that spoil the vine. Are you hearing me? We need to do that, me included, right? We need to deal with our sin as it is and not camouflage or ignore it until it gets to the point like it had for Israel and Judah here. Not lessen it or rename it or justify it. Listen, man, sin must be killed through sincere repentance. You can't make a pet out of sin. It's like trying to make a pet out of a wolf. Eventually, that wolf's gonna realize I'm the alpha around here. And he or she looks tasty. We've got to kill sin. John Owen rightly said of sin these words. He said, man, this is strong. Listen to what he said, John Owen. He said, sin always aims at the extreme. If it had its way, every time it rises up to tempt or entice, it would go out to the most extreme sin of that kind. If it could, every unclean thought or glance would become full-blown adultery. Every covetous desire would become oppression. If it were allowed its own reign, every thought of unbelief would become atheism. Men may reach a point where sin is, no, is so unrestrained that it no longer stings their conscience. The most outrageous sin no longer seems scandalous. If every impulse of lust were satisfied, it would reach the height of villainy. Sin is like the grave that is never satisfied. Repentance and confession of sin is a gift from God, beloved, to protect our souls. 
Active, honest repentance of sin is the only way to ongoing and fruitful fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with His people. It's the only way to guard our hearts from transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God like Isaiah talks about here. And that's because the only deliverance from the power and the allure and the destructive consequences of sin is found in God himself. And we'll see that next week in the rest of this chapter. But I want to close these words. I want to close tonight with these words from a man who knew what it was to sin and to break fellowship with God and then to truly repent. Anybody want to guess who that is? King David. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You notice the actor in all of that is God, right? For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Heavenly Father, I thank you tonight for the heavenly gift of repentance. For the divine gift of true repentance the gift that we might turn away from sin and pursuing sin. Lord God, and turn to you and trust in Christ and believe in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to cleanse us of our sin, past and present and future, all of them completely. I thank you for a text like this tonight that is a tough one. It is hard, but Lord, a word that is intended to be a warning to us 
lest we give ourselves to sin without real repentance and find ourselves far from you. Father, I pray that you would take these words as we've heard them and that you would impress them upon each of our hearts and that we would sincerely contemplate, Lord, how would you have me respond to these words? Because it's not, it's not an accident. It's not just a habit by which we are here tonight. Lord, you have brought us here to hear these words, to hear your voice speak to us so that we might respond. Help us to do that. Help us to respond tonight in a way that upholds and honors you. Thank you, Lord, for this time and the treasure that is your holy word. We bless you and give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen.